Hello and welcome to Trademark Belfast podcast number 43, I think it is. Over the last few weeks in our intermittent series on contemporary capitalism and a few of what we're calling our lockdown podcast, we looked at post-COVID recovery ideas. We've had a few chats about alternative economics, about community wealth building, municipal socialism and so on. And of course, as part of that, the role of cooperatives and a cooperative economy has come up in that debate. And today we're going to take a look at that again in a closer way. It's an interview between yours truly and Owen Connolly of Green Hope Politics, who is grilling me about our work in cooperative development and whether we think it's something the left should be more involved in. Um, as democratic organisations, as you know, operating in a market economy under, the, of course, the pressures of capitalist competition and profit, discussion on co-ops, in my experience, tends to kind of rile some on the left. They keep telling me that co-ops aren't the answer, to which we mostly respond. We fucking know they're not the answer, but they might be part of the answer. And sure, isn't it better to discuss these things and tease out the contradictions and the possibilities than automatically assume that you know fucking everything, eh? So, after today's we intro to the subject, we'll be returning again to look at it in more detail, uh, as whether cooperatives as organisations are simply ones in which workers are their own capitalists or whether they can act as schools of socialism or can exist as kind of actually existing utopias from which we can build, or indeed whether cooperatives and corporate economics can help as kind of intermediaries in moving beyond this particular economic system that appears to be killing the planet and lots of the things living on it. Uh, and indeed whether co-ops can lead to the achievement of what Connolly referred to as the cooperative commonwealth. Uh, oh, and by the way, if you're interested in actually setting up a cooperative, Trademark does that as well. I mean, fuck me, is there anything we don't do? If you're interested, you contact Alice McLaren, our resident expert. She's at Alice, A-L-I-C-E, Alice at TrademarkBelfast.com to find out more. Okay, that's me. Enjoy the wee chat. We'll see you next week. Slagle foiling. Hello, everybody. We're here today with Stephen Nolan uh, from Trademark Belfast. How are you, Stephen? Good today. Thanks, yeah. Can you please uh, tell us a little bit what you do at Trademark Belfast? Well, officially, Trademark Belfast is actually the anti-sectarian unit of the Irish labour movement. So our role for the last 20, well, 25 years has been really in the peace process. Um, particularly, uh, we have a unique um, responsibility for dealing with sectarian conflict in the workplace. Um, so if there's you know, disputes in factories and so on and workplaces, we'll get the call to go and try and mediate and resolve those disputes. They can start off quite small, and as you're aware, um, they can very easily spill over into the community here and become major kind of flashpoints of sectarian conflict. Um, we also work a lot with ex-paramilitaries, ex-political prisoners, over the last 20 years, and that's kind of our core work. Um, and that was the case until about 2008 with the global financial crash, um, when we kind of were approached by a number of groups, including ex-prisoner groups, and they asked us to explain what had just happened that, that September in terms of explaining what you know what happened to the world economy and why it fell off the edge of a cliff. And so since then, about 50% of our work um, is political economy education and political education within the trade union movement, but also broader within, within communities uh, in Ireland mainly, but also now for the last couple of years over in Britain as well and Europe. Um, not that we're any good at it, it's just that no one else was doing it. Um, and and that's, still, that's still the case, I would argue. There's, there's very little political education that goes on in, in the trade union movement in Britain and Ireland or indeed in left-wing political parties. Um, so we do, and the other thing we do, the third thing we do, um, is the kind of combination of both of those things is uh, we do a lot of cooperative development and cooperative and alternative economics. So rather than just talking about um, economics, we decided we would go out and try and set up worker and social cooperatives as well. And uh, what cooperatives have you managed to set up? 
What example? Well, the first one, the first one was the well, well ourselves. We're a cooperative. Mm-hmm. Trademark um, has been functioning as a cooperative for 20, over twenty years. We have a flat structure, flat pay structure. Um, we have a consensus decision-making approach. We don't have any uh, CEOs or you know senior directors or any of that nonsense. Which mm-hmm. is easy to do. It's easy to do in a small organisation. But the first co-op we set up was in 2012, and that was the Belfast Cleaning Society. Um, and one of our members of staff is one of the founding members of that cooperative. And we've been involved in helping 10, 15 other kind of co-ops uh, in, in North of Ireland, but also in the Republic as well. Well, is it something easy to set up? Like, can anyone do it? Oh, it's like any business, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. Co-ops are businesses fundamentally, and they have to make a surplus, so they have to have a good business idea, and they're able to sell a product or a service into the into our marketplace. I mean, it's not it's not non-capitalist. Um, they're just democratic businesses. So, um, if and it's quite counterintuitive for lefties like me, all of us really, to be setting up businesses, but uh, we've kind of convinced ourselves as long as they're democratic, it's okay. But of course, also cooperatives are very ethical in terms of what they do and what they sell. And, how they how they sustain themselves. So it's it's not any easier setting up a co-op than it is setting up a normal business. It's not any harder. It's just very different. That's all. Um, the most difficult thing is finding other people of a similar mindset to yourself to come together to do something in joint the joint benefit. Because we're all convinced, and we all do think like neoliberals now. We all think like individualists. So it's hard to find people to come together around a kind of joint vision uh, in these Thatcherite days. Yeah, well, that's actually, it's an interesting point that you raise because I remember from my own experience, even to decide on the name of a, of a company or a, of a, or a cooperative or something like this, uh, how is the decision making, making different in this uh, kind of organization? I know it's democratic, but like, is there a structure? How, how do you facilitate that democratic uh, organization? Well, it depends on uh, it depends what the co-op is, I suppose. It depends how many members it has. Most of the co-ops we work with are, are small, I mean, founding membership between three and five. Um, when you establish your own rules, you know, the company rules, so to speak, the cooperative rules, you establish your own ways of making decisions. It's one member, one vote. That's fundamentally what it has to be about. Um, for smaller co-ops, we always encourage them to arrive at a consensus rather than have you know, elections all the time. Sometimes democracy can be a little bit top-heavy. If you're constantly at democracy, you forget you're actually supposed to be running a, an enterprise or a business as well. Uh, there's no point having loads of democracy when uh, you're at work and there's no money coming in and no one's getting any money, getting any wages. Uh, it doesn't help. But you have to balance those things. You have to fundamentally make sure that democratic structures work, um, the smaller, the more simple, and you have to make sure that there's money coming in. Otherwise, you're not a co-op. You're just a group of friends sitting in someone's front room, skint. And, and if you're... Part of a co-op, does it really mean that everybody has the same salary? Like, is that? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it depends on your rules and how you set up your cooperative. I mean, there are some co-ops, the bigger the co-op gets, mm-hmm. you'll find the more kinds of divisions of labor em- uh, emerge. And some co-ops have ratios of salaries, like, you know, one to two or one and a half to two, one or something. So others choose to have flat structures. Um, and it, it depends. You'll find across Europe, there's a whole, there's a diverse range of, of, of um, of approaches to, to to salaries and to wages and everything else. Um, I know that Zuma, which is a great co-op, and we've got friends there, which is a whole a whole a whole foods co-op in um in, in England. They have I don't know how many members they have now. It's a big worker co-op, but they they have a flat structure there. Everyone gets paid the same. No, they get a good wage as well. Other co-ops decide to have ratios. It's entirely dependent on the co-op and the context and and what it wants to do and how it wants to reward its its own members. I don't know whether they agree it. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, I get the idea that everybody, you know, comes together and has a chat. But how do you stop it from becoming a, you know, a talking shop? Because this is something that I've seen before. People sit down and they have an idea. And then like two hours later or three hours later, there's no decision. Is there any kind of advice or any kind of methods that you have? That- I, 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 no, I've only been at this for eight or nine years. So there are other people to talk to who are, who are you know, vastly more experienced than we do. And we're fairly new to the game. But in my experience, the best calls I've, I've seen set up are by um, working class people who are looking for an alternative way to, to live their lives. The worst calls I've seen are set up by lefties. By, by, you know, I'm, I'm a lefty. I'm a, I'm a political activist as well. But political activists setting up cults are always a nightmare because, as, as precisely as you said, they're far more interested in talking about ideology and theory than they are actually setting up a, a, a business that actually works and provides wages. I come from a working class background and I like having wages every month. I like paying the rent. I like, you know, having money in my pocket. Uh, so that that's the priority for the cults we set up is making sure that the business idea is sound, making sure they're democratic uh, and making sure they get set up and run very quickly. Ones I've seen come to or collapse, have, have largely been run by left activists who are more interested in the theory of cooperatives than the actual practice of cooperatives. Okay. And for someone like me who's never worked in one, um, how is it different from the job I have now, the one that I, that I go to every day when there's not a pandemic? So uh, how is it different? Well, in my experience, it's I've, I've lived in a, I've worked in a cooperative atmosphere for 20 odd years i don't think i could work anywhere else now i'm spoiled really the idea of going into a workplace now and having a boss the idea of having someone who has more responsibility than you more salary than you more power than you and that person telling me what to do i might i would have two words and the second one would be off anything that person would say to me because you know i i understand and i appreciate and i love the idea of going into a workplace and having a having an equal say with everyone else there um it's still I, I, I could not survive in a normal business environment now the democratic nature of a cooperative is what it's about. Um, we, as an organisation, have been on a number of occasions, we've been near to closing. We've had, same as everybody else, 2008 was tough for us. It's going to be tough for us coming out of COVID uh, as an organisation, small organisation. Um, but because we're a co-op, was a reason that we survived. Because we wanted to, we decided, no, we'll give it another go. We're going to stick together. We're going to maybe take a pay cut for six months or a year. Then we're going to come back stronger. If, if this was a private business, I would simply have sacked everyone or I'd have been sacked by the owner or the boss in order to restore profits. Colts don't think like that. They think, right, can we cut? Where can we cut? Can we cut our own wages? And it's a democratic decision to keep the, the business going. Um, and, and that's why we're still here 20 years later. I guarantee if we'd have been a, a normal business, a normal entrepreneur-led business, you know, we would have been gone under a long time ago. Okay. And are cooperatives still like, uh, they're getting support, I suppose, from from uh, the government in the UK at the moment, like in, in Northern Ireland, like in the South, we have our, our payment, pandemic payments uh, subsidy to the business. It's the same. It would be the same rules, wouldn't it be? There's, it's really- uh, well, um, there, there's, um, there's very little support for corporate development in, in the North, uh, almost zero. Um, there's a little bit more in, in Britain from the co-op movement itself because they have a bigger co-op movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Republic, there's there's zero support for cooperative development from the government. In 2002, Fina closed down the cooperative development unit, and that was the end of state support for cooperative development. There are three large cooperative institutions, however, and that's the credit union movement, finance cooperatives, ICOS, kind of agricultural and other kinds of co-ops, and housing cooperative movements. And without being too critical of them, they do nothing to develop worker or social cooperatives. I mean, there's no money, there's no programs, there's no development. Um, and yet they have billions of pounds worth of assets. So there's a, there's four legs to the table of corporate development. 
Uh, in Ireland, there's one missing, and that's worker and social cooperatives. And at the moment, there's practically zero support, capacity building, infrastructural development for worker and social cooperatives in Ireland. It is a wasteland of cooperative development when you compare it to the rest of Europe. Really? And, and is there potential there? Like, I mean, how, how would the government, any government, go about, uh, I suppose, building these structures that you're talking about? What, what, what do you mean? What kind of policies are we talking about? Well, it, would, it, would, it would reopen the Corporate Development Unit, which is a, which is a, you know, it's a department in government uh, mm. that was specifically tasked with providing seed capital, capacity, training, support, for cooperatives, as it does for normal businesses. I mean, there's loads of programs to sell businesses in the public environment, but there's none that are specific to cooperatives. So that's an issue. So if someone comes in with a great idea to one of these business development units, no one's going to mention the word co-op because they don't know about it or they won't suggest it. So it's not even on the it's not even on the table as an option for some sort of business startup. That's the issue. Whether it's better or worse, leave that aside for one moment. It's not even there as an option. So that's something you could do, obviously. Um, you could... Um, you could change the legislative legislative environment. Uh, we we were lobbying for twice in the last ten years for changes to the legislation in Ireland. At the moment, to set up a worker co-op in Ireland, you need to have seven members. Mm-hmm. Nearly everywhere else in Europe, it's been reduced to three. In uh, Northern Ireland, Britain, it's three. You need three people to start a co-op. ICOS, the the, the big co-op organisation in Ireland, it lobbied against changes to legislation. Now you have to ask yourself the question: Why that's the case? Why would one of the largest cooperative institutions in Ireland lobby against changes that would make it easier? people to set up worker co-ops that's maybe your next interview uh, and again that, that legislation that, that keeps it at seven members um dates back nearly 100 years so it's completely inappropriate for 20 for 2020 and it's completely inappropriate at this time post kind of this covid generation where we need a kind of more um friendly environment for cooperative development we simply don't have it legislatively or infrastructurally or financially i mean it's it's really hard to set up a cooperative environment i mean it's nearly impossible we're part of a we've been setting up an all-island cooperative network over the last few years about 60 members on it maybe it's about 20 co-ops um and they've all done brilliant work to even exist because none of them hardly have had any support from the states you know so it's a real a real struggle here to be honest with you as you can tell from my tone of voice no it's just it's, it's weird because i i know we have a history of cooperatives all the way back to plunkett Horace Bunker and the cream absolutely huge, amazing history yeah amazing history as you said right back to the days of Plunkett the days of the agricultural cult the days of the Limerick Soviets and the various corporate movements that were set up and even during the revolutionary period but then you had the counter-revolution of the 1920s and 30s in Ireland and lots of that progressive left-wing development simply stopped or was done away with I mean I have a poster from the 1950s now this is related to Northern Ireland from the kind of British cooperative movement. And the poster says, keep socialism out of the cooperative. So there's kind of an antipathy in parts of the cooperative movement in Britain and Ireland to anything that smacks of actually being socialist or left-wing. And I come, we come at cooperatives from a socialist perspective. Um, so those ideological differences are fundamentally still there. People may not talk about them, but we I recognise them. And I see them in the institutions that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, yeah, there's a, there's a, we had... We've been lobbying so hard for any kind of changes at the moment, and some of the political parties uh, in the South have been really useful, helpful. They've been lobbying on these issues, independent for change, that kind of group of independents. Did some work last year. Sinn Féin has produced a paper on worker cooperatives recently, which is quite good, um, mm. quite developed kind of ideas in it. Um, but the state simply isn't interested. That's it's a big surprise to me because I always thought, because of the history that I mentioned, that there was some kind of influence on that especially with the unions what about the union movements um 
Are they yeah. I'm an active trade unionist myself, and the Belfast Cleaning Co-op is, is a unionised cooperative. You know, it's a union co-op in that kind of American idea of unions being heavily involved in other parts of the world in establishing co-ops and helping workers buy out businesses, maybe if the business is going under or there's a succession issue. Lots of businesses who are owned by families simply stop trading rather than actually maybe offering it to the workers. And all across Europe, in, in Italy, you have the Marcora laws. In France, you have um, supportive legis legislative support. That if, a, for, if people workers want to buy the business, they get first bite at the apple. You know, We have none of that here, of course. Um, the unions here, we did get a motion passed at the Congress, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions Conference a couple of years ago, saying that they support worker buyouts. So there's a kind of an ideological or political commitment to that concept, but there's no real capacity building going on within the union movement, to, for instance, to, to train up uh, officials to, to, to recognise that when they go into a business that's closing, that they might say, actually, this business is viable. We, want, we, we could help you, the workers, can continue with this business and perhaps buy it out. In France and Spain and other parts of the world, that's normal business. That's what happens. That doesn't happen here. Um, and it would take the unions and, of course, the state to, to become uh, more kind of open to that idea. And that's not to say unions are against pop by any means. They're just not really that interested at the moment. Bits of it are, and some of the bigger unions have helped us uh, from time to time, but there's no real major commitment to it. You know? And I think they, they fail to see I mean, there's a continuum, isn't there, between industrial democracy, which is what unions represent, giving workers a voice in the workplace, and direct democracy, actually giving the workers the workplace. And we see that as a continuum between the two. Not everyone in the union movements would maybe recognise that continuum. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's common, to me, it's common sense that co-ops and unions work hand in hand. Yeah, well, from my own experience, I remember I was uh, a teacher. I'm from an English language uh, school, like the, the industry, and it closed. And I remember bringing that up that maybe we should think about trying to, you know, take it for ourselves or, or take it over. But the first things we were told is you would lose your accreditation, you would have this, you would have all those uh, loans to pay off. And there's a, there's a whole big story uh, about that. But in this case, with the pandemic and we have Debenhams workers and we have different companies closing down, is, there, is it a viable option, do you think? For the governments to step in and say, you know, can can these workers, you know, retrain them, get them together, and maybe uh, save their jobs in a way? Is this is this a possibility? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the possibilities are always there. The alternatives all exist, but we have a government that's not interested, ideologically or practically, in those alternatives. That's the that's the problem. That's the issue. In terms of what those alternatives are, we've been working with some people in, in America called the, the Democracy Collaborative. Who have developed some fantastic work and continue to do great work on community wealth building and how to kind of democratize the economy in different ways that involves you know stopping stopping outsourcing for start stopping privatization but more than that building the capacity of communities and workers to run democratic businesses themselves and so one of the ideas here would be um you know if, if the state if the republic or if for that matter the assembly in the north executive had a state state holding company that would kind of raise the capital to buy or to take equity shares in many of these failing, not really failing businesses, they're businesses that are failing because of COVID, and um, to take equity shares in those businesses or simply to buy out those businesses, to hold them, uh, and in the intervening period to train up the workers to build their capacity. So when those businesses were relaunched, you relaunched them as social or worker properties. Um, you could also take equity shares in some of those businesses and also say to them, and by the way, we, we, we're going to help you get over this really difficult period. When you come out the other end, we want you to be moving towards zero carbon. 
as part of the condition of this, this state support. Um, some of those businesses continue as is, as SMEs, privately owned, but with strong conditions attached to becoming more green as part of the Green New Deal. And others could be relaunched as worker and social cooperatives. So there's loads of great ideas out there for what we could be doing and using COVID almost as a springboard, mm. some sort of more democratised and green economy. But in Ireland, that simply won't happen. Not with the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and Green Government. It simply isn't, simply isn't going to happen. We know that. Um, you need alternative, And it's not going to happen in Britain either. Mm. And um... so the, the problem with economic development, I suppose, is that you know you need, which is quite depressing, you kind of need to win state power as well. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's from both ends, the state power and and the communities coming together. Well, one I'm going to give you an example. The Mondragon uh, Cooperative in Spain, as far as I understood it, it, it came from the people in Mondragon in, in the Basque country. They just got together and they built it up over the decades, and now it's like it's worth something like seventeen percent of the Spanish economy, as far as I understand. And it's like a huge thing uh, internationally, international trade, and, and so on. Um, could we have something like that here? Like, um, is Mondragon's? Yeah, Mondragon's a fantastic example. I mean, it's slightly problematic in other ways. But I don't want to get into that. But as an example for corporate development, there's nothing better in the world you can point to. Um, but it was established in 1956. I mean, that's like that's nearly 70 years ago. I, I don't think we've got time to wait for 70 years to develop a massive mm-hmm. you know, Mondragon. And, and for years, Mondragon wasn't very effective. It took years to build up decades of commitment. And it is a fantastic example. And it does great work up there in the Basque country. We had them over on the study trip in 2012. We've been over there and talked to them, and they were really helpful. And it's a great, as you said, it's a great example to use to convince other people of the potential. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it's so unique. I don't think it's a model for others, if you know what I mean. Um, there are other areas like um, perhaps around Emilia-Romagna in northern Italy, the Red Belt, around Bologna, where you have thousands of smaller co-ops all doing different things, and de- de- you know, making um, different kinds of goods and delivering different kinds of services. Uh, you have the little experiment down there in um, Andalusia, um, Marinaleda, the village, the cooperative village down in southern Spain, which is a great example of what you can do if you have a democratic ownership of True, true democratic ownership of local areas. So there's loads of examples of, of, of what we can do, I suppose. But um, yeah, in, in order for this to become something real and part of the, an alternative economy, it does need, you can't avoid talking about state power and state support and state investment. I mean, if anything, COVID-19 has told us and, and shown to us is that massive state intervention is what we need with these existential crises. And the climate breakdown is an existential crisis. What does it require? Massive state intervention. Um, we're not going to develop these grassroots connected network of communities without that. That's my honest opinion. The state's still a massive, um, you know, powerful engine for change. The problem is the wrong people are driving it. So uh, I suppose, are you optimistic then that something might change in the near future? Well, I'm a socialist, always optimistic. You know, that's a, it's, it's in the bones. If, if I wasn't optimistic, I would just become a cynic and I'd give up. But no, yeah, that. There's great work going on by organisations who are trying to bring together those, that, that kind of institutional power and grassroots activism. So, for example, that, that I mentioned the Democracy Collaborative in America and the work that they're doing in Preston, um, or the Preston model, which is that community wealth building model. Ayrshire in Scotland has, has just begun or has been developing a similar model, quite a radical, transformative model, where it brings together local government and grassroots activism for the benefit of the local community. So, for example... Um, one of the key principles of community wealth building is that the money that local governments spend, which is billions, they make sure that they procure and they buy services from the local community. So, you know, they don't 
kind of buy those services and the likes of Serco and G4S like they normally do. They try and keep it local. Um, they make sure that when they procure services, they do so from SMEs that are unionized, that are paying the living wage. Um, and then at the same time, they build the capacity of local communities to set up cooperatives, to set up worker cooperatives. They're engaged in progressive land transfers and transfers of assets from the state to local communities. So local communities can start to, to run and, and own that wealth and, and generate wealth. But when that wealth is created, it doesn't get extracted out by the usual parasites within capitalism. It stays local and that money circulates locally. And as you know, multiplier effect applies and it creates more wealth. So the, so the community wealth building program in Ayrshire and Preston and is now being looked at by, um, the, by Belfast City Council. Um, potentially by the executive. Those are really good examples of what you can actually do to um, to kind of create a, a more a more democratic economy and an economy that works for everybody rather than just for the few. And just uh, just a last question because I'm conscious of the time. Um, one of the arguments I've heard against cooperatives is that with the EU rules and an open economy and all these things that you you can't have them. They're not they're not viable. Um, you agree at all with this or not? Uh, well, we haven't got time to get into that one, but uh, there's no doubt that the various treaties of the European Union are driving the European Union in a neoliberal direction. That, mm -hmm. That's a fact. I mean, everyone knows that. You can't deny that. Uh, the promise of social Europe has disappeared. Um, the European Union has doubled down on austerity 2.0. So it doesn't look as if, I mean, even that new stimulus package is about 0.56% of the European Union budget. I mean, it's insignificant. It's, it's irrelevant, nearly. So I'm, I'm not sure we can rely upon that particular engine to bail us out or to um, provide the kinds of state investment, state intervention that we need, really, not just to get out of COVID, but also to deal with the, the crisis that is climate breakdown. Um, you know, the European Union is, is deeply problematic at any level. People who are progressive, who are socialists, to want to see democratic economies, democratic you know economics emerge, um, because its treaties bind us into a different kind of model, and it's a model of, of, of free of free markets, um, and an open market, and that's that's just a fact. And uh, you know um, how that's transformed, or you know remain and reform all those arguments into something more progressive. Um, I'm yet to see a blueprint for that particular plan, and I look forward to reading it if it does come out. Hey, Stevie Nolan, thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure. I hope you'll come back and we can continue this conversation in the future sometime. No bother. Pleasure. Slango for. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Up the workers and Slango Foil.